Welcome everyone to Dafyomi One Week at a Time, Masechet uh, Sota. Um, this is our fifth lesson, and uh, today we are going to be reviewing Daf 29 to 34. Uh, sorry again for last week, it was a little complicated. Um, I wanted to also mention that uh, the spring Zman uh, of Web Shiva is dedicated in memory of Lucy, Rina, and Maya D, um, who were uh, killed, uh, murdered over Pesach. Um, so they were actually from a community right near me, uh, from Efrat, which is also in Gush Etzion. Um, so... Um, their neshamot should have an aliyah, and um, we are going to learn uh, in their memory. Um, okay, um, this week we're going to be talking about uh, impurity and purity. Uh, we have seen this picture before. Uh, this is thanks to Rabbi Natan Farber from Style Adaf. Um, so just a little uh, background, we'll get to Tuma in one minute. Um, but last week we mentioned, we started the fifth chapter, and at the end of the first Mishnah, uh, we have teachings of Rabbi Akiva. And um, he taught that a earthenware vessel, which is very susceptible to impurity, um, if there is a sheretz, a sheretz is a one of eight species of uh, uh, types of, like, Crawly animals like lizards and toads and things like that. There's a specific list of eight of them. Um, if they are dead and suspended in the airspace of an earthenware vessel, then the entire inside of the vessel becomes impure. Uh, and therefore, the the Mishnah Rabbi Akiva gave an example of an oven, which in those days was made. Uh, oven, and you were baking bread in the oven. So, like the bread were like the pizzas, like they put it up against uh, the wall of the oven. Um, and let's say this dead creature is now in the middle of the oven. The question is, what happens to the bread? So, Rabbi Akiva explains that the sheretz, the animal, is an av hatuma. So, that's level number two over here. You see how it says. The second, like lighter purple, it says dead sheretz, right? So it's an av hatuma, which means it is um, the uh, like first degree. Well, I don't use the word first. Let's say primary source of impurity of tuma. Then the if it goes into this oven, the oven becomes a rishon. That's the pink one. Rishon means. Um, the first degree, like the first thing that touched the original thing. And then the bread becomes a shani. Shani is secondary. So you see here it says food or liquid that was touched by a rishon. So again, the the oven was the rishon is number one. Um, then the oven, the sorry, the oven is number one. The bread becomes a second, secondary tuma, right? A shani for tuma. And Rabbi Akiva says that this bread can now, if it touches food, it makes it a third degree impure thing. Now, if you look here on this chart, um, 
There is no such thing as a third degree, meaning the green that says shlishi. A third degree is only food that it has extra sanctity, meaning it's either truma or it is a, a sacrificial meat, right? What we call kudshim. Um, those two things can become third degree. And there's even a fourth degree, that's the, the, the blue at the bottom. Fourth degree is only sacrificial meat, which is called kudshim. So if you see here on our pyramid, food can become up till the yellow, up until a second degree level of um, impurity. Rabbi Akiva says in our Mishnah from last week that it could actually make a shlishi, a third degree. Now, we don't hold that way, but because we're mentioning it, so now the Gemara is going to talk about all of these, um, all these concepts. Now, it's important to understand that um, a very fundamental concept that has to do with impurity is actually learnt from Sota. So at the top of, well, a little bit further down, uh, towards the top of 29, um, the Gemara tells us that we learn Sheret, meaning the dead creature, from Sota. How does that work? Because if we have a safek, safek means a doubt. We're unsure if someone touched this dead animal. So the question is, what do we do with doubt? Are we more stringent or are we lenient? So the Gemara asks, right, if we're not sure, right, can this food be eaten or not? Um, so the Gemara tells us, if there's someone who we can ask, meaning if there was someone who saw what you did, did you touch this animal or not? So then because someone out there knows the truth, so then we say if we're not sure in that case, um, we are more stringent and we say that it is impure. If there's nobody out there, right? You were walking by yourself, nobody could have seen what happened since there's nobody to ask. So we're unsure, we're going to be lenient, and we're going to say that, um, that it is pure. And the Gemara tells us on Daf 29 that we learn this from the Sota, meaning the Sota, if nobody saw her do anything, meaning if it was, um, if, if, if there was a doubt um, and it happened in the public arena, that's not the Sota, right? If it happened in the public arena, then we are going to be lenient and going to say um, the thing is pure, meaning let's say you walk down the street, the main thoroughfare, and there was uh, something dead on the road and you're not sure if you walked, you know, if you touched it or if you walked over it. If it's in the public domain, we say if there's a doubt in the public domain, we're lenient and we assume you are pure. However, if it's in the private domain, right, in your house or in a, in a private area, so then when there's a doubt, we're going to be stringent and we're going to say impure. And the Gemara basically says we learn that from Sota, right? Sota secludes herself in a room with that man. We don't know what happens. And we see that she has to go through this entire um, process. 
So we see there's doubt and we are stringent, but it happened in a private area. So therefore, in Hebrew, we would say, Safek Tuma Birishut Hayachid Tameh, right? When we have a doubt with impurity and it happens in a private domain, then we're stringent and we say that the, that the thing or the person is impure. However, if it's in the public domain, so then we assume that the person is or the thing is pure. Okay, so that was where we learned from Sota. But now, um, since we're talking about impurity, so the Gemara asks about this idea of a secondary item, a shani, making something impure uh, into a shlishi. Shlishi, like from the word shalosh, third degree. And we said that that's not from the Torah. It's not written, in, it's not biblical. Rather, Rabbi Akiva learns it um, from something else, right? That's called a kalvachomer. We learn it from something else, right? Just like truma can become a third degree, so, so too, right? Maybe regular things can also become a third degree. Um, so we, we, the Gemara now brings up uh, a person who's called a tzvul yom. The, the, the word literally means um, he, that person immersed that day, right? What does that mean? A person goes uh, in the time of the, of the temple when you were immersing for uh, different things, um, people went during the day. Nowadays, when we're immersing for um, family purity, we say that it should only be done at night. It's more modest so that people shouldn't see. Um, in the time of the temple, people were very um, aware that other people were either pure or impure. So you went to the mikvah uh, during the day. Now, certain people, you needed to wait till the nighttime in order to be uh, completely pure, even though there's no real action. Uh, you just had to wait till what's called Ha'arev Shemesh, for the sun to go down. Um, so that person who's waiting for the sun to go down is called a Tzvul Yom, right? That person went today, they're waiting for the sun to go down, and then they can be completely uh, pure. So the Gemara says that the Tzvulyom, that person, can't eat truma that day, has to wait till the nighttime, but that person can eat chulin, right? Chulin is regular food. That doesn't matter if you're pure or impure. Um, and therefore, uh, we see that uh, this loaf, remember we have that loaf of bread, that's secondary, that's a shani, um, should make, maybe it makes something a shlishi, right? A third degree, right? Because again, we see a distinction between truma and chulin. So the Gemara says, no, a tvul yom, this person is different because that person actually became impure directly, right? And that person transmits impurity, um, but a food does not become an av hatuma, right? That's the, the, the purple, right? A, a food cannot become a, a um, primary source. It can only become first degree, second degree, third degree. Um, and therefore, we can't compare food to a person. Um, 
And we also can't learn it from the earthenware vessel because the earthenware vessel has different stringencies that other vessels do not. Um, therefore, the Gemara says, let's learn it from both of those things, um, from the truma and the chulin, and from the uh, from the um, the vessel. And the Gemara says, no, we can't use this. Um, we can't learn from one to the other because all of these things have stringencies, uh, and this one doesn't. So we're left with a question again. Rabbi Akiva says that food can become third degree, meaning a shlishi. Uh, everyone else disagrees and says that food can only become second degree, a sheni. Um, as I mentioned, um, kudshim, meaning uh, sacrificial meat, can become fourth degree. That's the blue one on the bottom, a rivii, a fourth degree. Um, and that is, um, as opposed to the truma, that can become only a third degree, right? And at every stage, we hit uh, a, a kind of a, a ceiling where each thing kind of stops and can't continue to the next level. Um, so we say that sacrificial meat can become third degree and can also become fourth degree. Uh, so that's just um, in terms of what is uh, seen as becoming pure and impure. Um, Daf 30, again, as we said, um, many sages say that a second degree food cannot make a third degree for regular food. Again, only for truma. Can, right, truma is the only thing that be, can, can become third degree. Um, and uh, the, the Gemara continues to explain that anything that is impure, only on a rabbinic level cannot make regular food impure, meaning it's too far removed. Um, the way I think about this is, is almost like um, things being contagious, right? So if something can transmit impurity, so then right, it can transmit to the level below it. Uh, when it gets to that block, it is no longer able to transmit that impurity. So there's actually, um, the word in the Gemara is, if something is called tameh, tameh meaning impure, it has the ability to continue, not only to be impure itself, but to transmit that impurity. When something is called pasul, right? Pasul means, um, how do you say pasul? Like, um, disqualified right so it's impure but it does not transmit it further right it stops at that uh, at that level um so that's just a little bit of um review or uh, summary of purity and impurity um and uh, again as i mentioned right food that um let's say if a person is impure uh, when they eat the food, the food becomes first degree impurity uh, or second degree, depending on what that what level the person has. Um, and then uh, the Gemara starts talking about chala. So it's important to understand. Uh, we use the word chala nowadays to mean uh, bread that is braided that we eat on Shabbat. Um, but it's important to understand that the word chala 
um, in the Mishnah and in the Gemara um, means that loaf of bread that was given to the priest as a gift. Right? If any of you have ever made a challah, we have a, a phrase called, did you take challah? Right? Or I'm about to take off challah. Right? Um, there is uh, a, a law that uh, when you make a certain amount of dough, uh, and it's, um, I don't remember the exact cup measurements, but I think it's like five pounds in America of flour. In Israel, it's like two kilo um, of flour. If you make dough with that amount of flour, you have an obligation to take off challah. Uh, originally, in the time of the of the temple, that challah was given. You actually took off not something symbolic, but you took off a piece. You baked it and you gave it to your neighbor, who is a priest, who is the kohen. Nowadays, it is not biblical mandate. We're just doing it um, to, you know, kind of, it's, it's rabbinic in origin nowadays, so it's more uh, ceremonial. We take off a piece. It's usually like the size of like a golf ball. Um, you make a blessing, la frish chala min ha'isa, you're separating chala from the dough, uh, and we actually uh, either burn it or wrap it up and throw it in the garbage, um, but that is to symbolize what was used to be given to the priest. So that's called challah. Um, so um, that challah, as I mentioned, it's a gift to the Kohen. Uh, therefore, it has the, the status of truma. As I mentioned, truma is the gift that's given to the Kohen. Now, it has a special sanctity, right? And if you look on our chart, that means that it can become impure. Um, and therefore, um, um, and therefore, um, here, um, when you take off challah and you give it to the priest, as I mentioned to the Kohen, it becomes challah. Now, what happens if your dough becomes impure, right? So now we have a problem because, um, if your dough is impure, which is not a problem because regular people who are not koanim, you can eat impure food, that's okay. Um, but I, if I separate challah, I'm going to make the challah impure. Now that's a problem. I cannot make truma impure. That's really, that's problematic um, because it's not allowed to become impure. Um, so we're concerned to take challah because we don't want it to become impure. Therefore, the Gemara teaches us that if the dough becomes impure, you can take challah from a pure dough um, for, right, for the impure dough as well. Um, but, and those of you who have ever made, made challah and, and taken off challah, let's say you make, um, you know, let's say you make dough in two different bowls, but you only want to take off challah once. You put the two bowls together and you have the dough touching, and then I can take off the challah. Now, I can't have it touching because if the pure dough touches the impure dough, the pure dough is going to become impure. So that doesn't work. So the Gemara says um, you can take a small piece of dough, um, very small, and connect the two of them. And because it's so small, 
the connection doesn't transfer the impurity from one dough to the other. Uh, and therefore, that works. Uh, the sages say, no, 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 this sounds, this is not a smart idea. Don't do that. Um, rather, um, um, we, don't, we don't want you to do that. The Gemara says, well, maybe uh, the, the, the sages say that it, maybe it could work um, because, again, a second degree, again, if you have impure, that's one, right? Small piece. That becomes two. New dough, the pure dough, that's three. Now, we just said that three cannot become impure if it's hulin, if it's regular, right? So, therefore, it seems that you can do this because even if you uh, connected it with a small piece of dough, uh, it would be too far removed from the original dough to make it impure. Um, Okay, uh, that is our uh, purity, impurity lesson for today. Um, okay, uh, yes, Zohar is asking about, uh, yes, it's less than a kazait, exactly. I think it said even less than a beta, uh, but it is less than the sheet or less than the measurement that would normally be significant. Um, yes, and uh, Lynn mentions the idea of pre-made dough, uh, exactly, that um, you don't have to take off, uh, you don't have to take off uh, challah, and um, yes, very uh, good point. Okay, the next thing that the Mishnah taught us last week was about the cities of the Levi'im. Uh, if you remember in the Torah, um, every, every tribe got their own um, uh, inheritance, their own land. Um, but the Levi'im, the Levites, did not get uh, a, a piece of land. Rather, they were told um, to live amongst their brethren uh, all over Israel in special cities, meaning every tribe needed to set aside certain cities for the Levi'im, uh, and the Levi'im were basically um, the teachers of the of the area, um, and the people of the area would support them. Um, so uh, from here, the the Mishnah was talking about how much land do you so you have to give them a city plus some land around the city. Uh, so one is. Um, either 2,000 amma, uh, and that would be like the city limits, what we called tchum. If you remember from the Sechuvin, we talked about the tchum, the area around the city. Um, for me, that area needed to be, it could be cultivated lands, like fields, vineyards, uh, and not necessarily the tchum. Uh, from here, uh, the Mishnah spoke about how did the Jewish people sing uh, Shirat Hayam, the song of the sea. Uh, and it says that it was sung like Hallel. What does that mean? That Moshe basically said, Az Yashir Moshe, right? And Ashira la Hashem. And then the nation said Ashira la Hashem after each verse. So like every line um, Moshe would say. And then instead of repeating the line, the nation would say, Ashira la Hashem, right, as almost like a chorus. Um, that's one way to understand it. Or, no, Moshe said one verse, and then um, the, the people would repeat the verse. Or, 
um, the first verse was repeated, and then they all said it all together. Uh, and this is all based on the fact that it said, um, as Yashir Moshe Bnei Israel, right, to say. So what does that mean, to say? There had to have been some sort of responsive nature to the song. Um, and uh, it seems that um, when everybody saw the, um, the presence of God at the splitting of the sea, uh, that's when they said the song, Shayam. Uh, so much so that the Gemara says that even the infants would sing. Uh, and not only that, um, the Gemara says even the faces in their mother's womb sang the song of Az Yashir. Uh, again, um, you know, one could think about what really is the goal uh, of this uh, Midrash, of this story. Uh, I think the point is, uh, I, I don't think it's meant to be taken, I mean, it could be taken literally, um, but may, I think that one idea could be, right, that it was so clear that this was the hand of God, that even, right, the infants would sing songs if they could, uh, or maybe miraculously everyone was singing uh, just like the adults. So uh, I guess one could uh, understand it however they want uh, to understand it. Um, the last thing from the um, Mishnah from last week, uh, on the top of Daft 31, is a discussion about Eov. Uh, about Job, uh, and it says that Eov uh, served God out of love, um, and it's it's based on the verse. Um, and some say right uh, that Eov feared God. Uh, so the, the the discussion is: Did he fear God or did he love God? Right? We have a concept of ahavat Hashem, right? Loving God. And Yirat Hashem. Now, Yirat, I use the word fear, um, but I think of a more accurate, uh, a more accurate idea is um, awe, having awe of God, a reverence of God. Um, so here it says that um, that Eov feared God or had awe of God, like Abraham, and this fear was out of love. Right, the, the, the basis was out of love. Um, and again, now the question is, like, what's better, to serve God out of love or out of fear? Uh, and the, the Gemara says that if you look at the verses, uh, it's better out of love because it has a longer lasting effect to 2,000 generations instead of 1,000 generations. Um, and the chapter ends with two students having dreams. They each have a dream. One has a dream about loving God, and one has a dream about fearing God. And the teacher says, good job, guys. You know, you're both right. Uh, and I think it's very interesting. I once heard um, someone discuss, um, you know, like, we need to be on a spectrum, or everyone is on a spectrum, uh, you know, if love is all the way on one side and fear of God is always on the other side. Uh, and I think different, either, you know, different groups of people or different people throughout their lives relate to God in different ways. Um, so it's interesting to think about like our relationship to God and where we put ourselves on that 
you know, on that spectrum. So uh, I think the Gemara here is definitely saying um, both are very important. Um, and I think, you know, everyone has to think about what's good for, what's good for them. Uh, okay, uh, that is the end of the uh, fifth chapter. And we are now going to learn um, probably the shortest chapter in Talmud, but I have not uh, I, I haven't checked that, uh, so don't quote me, but um, it's basically one daf. Um, the Mishnah tells us, okay, we're back to, back to Sota, um, we're back to the woman, and the Mishnah tells us, um, the woman had warning and then seclusion, and then we hear about it um, because of some sort of rumor. Uh, and the question is, um, how valid is that rumor? Um, some say we take it for face value. Others is we say it is uh, not valid. Um, and here, um, then the, the Mishnah says that if one witness comes um, and says, um, uh, so, oh, excuse me, let me take a step back. You hear, you hear about it, um, you hear about it from, with a rumor, or from a not valid witness. Um, so then, right, meaning a woman or a slave, um, so then um, the, they need to get divorced, but she gets her, her ktuva money, right? Because again, she can't drink now because there is some sort of discussion that seems very unclear, um, but she can't prove her innocence so we give her, she gives her money. or maybe only if the gossip is very bad, then he needs to divorce her. Meaning if it's just like, oh, I heard a little rumor, so then maybe that's not enough. Um, the Mishnah continues, if there's one witness who says um, that she had an affair, again, remember we said met, the word tum'ah, but it doesn't mean impurity, it means she... Um, you know, slept with this adulterer. So if one witness says that uh, they saw, uh, that, right, this person saw her have relations with this person, she doesn't drink um, because, again, now there's a witness to say not that she secluded, not, but not only did she seclude, but th there was actually an act. Um, and now the Mishnah says, even if this one witness is a woman or a slave, we believe them, and she loses the ktuva money. She can't drink, and she doesn't get her ktuva money, and they get divorced. Um, now, we have a list of women who are partially believed. What is this? Who are these women? Right? The mother-in-law, the co-wife, right? These are people who we know um, have vested interests right, or, right, the evil stepmother, right, these are people who want this woman to fail, um, so these women are believed um, that maybe something happened, but she does not lose her ktuba money, right, because again, we know that these women might not like her, again, I love my mother-in-law, she's right here, um, but, right, um, some people have beautiful relationships with their mothers-in-law, and then the Mishnah is saying not everybody does. And sometimes the mother-in-law tries to right, uh, conspire against the, the daughter-in-law. So we believe her, 
but not enough for the woman to lose her ketuvah. And either way, she doesn't drink um, the bitter waters, right? So again, um, till now we were talking about um, the the ceremony as I think we saw it as um, I don't want to use the word punishment, but definitely a negative thing. Here we're saying, um, you know, she can't drink. Is that a good thing or is it not a good thing, right? So I think it's um, we're seeing it in both lights. On one hand, it's a stringency, and on the other hand, it's a leniency. Um, Okay, let's keep going about one witness versus more. So there's a verse that teaches us that one witness is believed for uh, if they say that she actually slept with this person. Um, again, we're not talking about the warning. This after being warned and after seclusion, um, if there is a witness that she actually slept with the person, then we have a problem. Um, and um, okay, now the Gemara, the Mishnah says, um, what about when we have contradicting um, testimony? So it says, let's say one witness says that she slept with this man, and one witness says no, right? Or um, it's one woman versus another woman, so then she drinks, meaning it's not enough proof in either direction, right? It kind of is one versus one, so we knock it out, and she drinks the water to prove her innocence or get punished if she's guilty. One witness says that she slept with this guy, and two says she's one, two wins. Right? It's also important, let me just, I don't know if I've ever said this before, um, right? Two witnesses is um, what we would call uh, proper testimony, right? More than two, it's important to understand. If you have three, four, five, it doesn't matter. As long as you get two, like let's say you have four versus two, it, four doesn't win, right? We, we'll talk about it when we get later on in, in uh, other Masertot, but once you get to two, that's um, acceptable testimony. More than that doesn't matter. There's a there's a, a phrase that's that says kemea. As long as you have two, it's like you have a hundred. It doesn't matter. But one is not enough, right? One is what we would call you could call it partial or invalid testimony. One is not enough. So as as soon, right, if you have one versus one, it doesn't. It's a wash, um, or it's something, but not enough. Two versus one, two always wins. Um, so again, one says she slept with this guy. Two says no, so she drinks, right? Because two versus one. Two says she had an affair. One says she doesn't. So now she doesn't drink because two, that's it. As soon as there are two witnesses, um, we assume that she had this affair and that's the end of the story. Okay, the Gemara explains, as we said, one versus one, she still drinks because the second witness contradicted the first one, as we said, right? So when the verse says, um, aid in ba, right, there is no witness. So the, the Gemara interprets the word witness as two witnesses, um, because unless it says one witness, then if you just use the word witness, it means two. Um, so again, as long as there aren't two, then one is believed. 
right? And we said that in this idea of Sota, one is actually believed. Let's say we only have one witness who says she slept with him, but nobody comes to contradict. So that's it. She doesn't drink. So the Gemara understands that when this one witness comes, they're believed as if it's two people. Um, therefore, if you have one versus one, then shouldn't the first one be seen as two? And then it's two versus one. So how does that work? Um, so the Gemara says, no, it's seen as one versus one, and she still drinks. Um, another way to understand this Mishnah is that the whole Mishnah is talking about um, when we say one witness versus two. Um, one, another way to understand it is we're always talking about women witnesses or slaves, meaning so they're uh, what we would call invalid witnesses. And that's when we follow majority, right? Two versus one, one versus one. Um, and that's when we talk about um, majority. Or uh, the, the end of the chapter says, if a woman comes first, so then she can be overrided, right? Two women against one man would be seen as 50-50. Uh, and with that, uh, we finish the sixth chapter. Uh, we're now on Daf 32. Um, and we're going to start the next chapter. Um, the next chapter, um, we're going to mention Sota, but then we're totally going off topic. Um, the Mishnah tells us that um, the following can be said in any language, right? Meaning not only Hebrew, but uh, English, Russian, uh, any other language. What are the following things? So Sota, that's why it's here, right? So when the Kohen, when the priest, tells the woman, right, you need to make, right, did you do this? And, and this is what's going to happen. And you're going to drink the water. And this is going to be your punishment. All of those things. Remember, we talked about all the verses that he needs to say. If the woman doesn't understand Hebrew, he needs to say it in a language that she understands. Because the whole point of this ceremony is to affect the woman. And the whole, if you remember, the whole reason we're doing this is so she either admits guilt or proves her innocence, therefore she has to understand it. So this can be done in any language. Uh, other things that can be done in any language, uh, declaration of the tithes, uh, when you say at the end of the third and sixth year of the, the Shemitah cycle, you say uh, a, a, like a, a paragraph that says that I promise that I gave all the ma'asrot that I needed to give, right? I gave all the gifts to the priests, to the poor people. Uh, I did everything that I needed to do. Um, other things that can be said in any language, um, Shema, right? Uh, Shema. Um, tfilah, tfilah, uh, prayer in the Gemara or the Mishnah means the silent Amida, the Shmona Asrei. So these can all be said in any language. Um, birkat hamazon, the grace after the meal, um, an oath of testimony that you don't have any testimony to give, or an oath of a deposit. All of these things can be said in any language. The following need to be said in Hebrew. Um, bikurim, right? Bikurim was uh, when you went to the temple with your first fruit and you said Arami Ovedavi, the paragraph. Uh, from the Torah, so you needed to say it in Hebrew. 
chalitza. So that brings us back to Yevamot. If you remember the chalitza ceremony, you need to say those words in Hebrew. Um, the blessings and the curses that were said on the mountain of Grizim and Eval. Um, we're going to talk about this in a minute. Um, but basically, the um, the Torah tells us, Hashem tells us, God tells the Jewish people, when you go into Israel, you're going to go to Har Grizim, and half of you know, and you're going to stand at these two mountains, and they're going to say blessings and curses. And here's List of the um, so those had to be said in Hebrew. Birkat um, Kwanim, the priestly blessings, um, the um, the blessing of the high priest, um, the parsha of the Melech, when they, the king would read from the Torah, that had to be in Hebrew. Egla um, Arufa, which is, I think it's called decapitation of the calf. Um, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, it's a ceremony that's done uh, when they find somebody who was killed in between two cities and they're not sure um, which city is responsible. So there's a whole ceremony that's done. Um, and um, when the priest speaks to the nation before battle, all of those things need to be done in Hebrew. Um, so the Gemara tells us that this is based on the verses. Um, if it's in Hebrew, it says the word speak. Right, uh, you should say these words. Um, so you have to actually say these words. Um, so the the ah, sorry, this is still in the Mishnah. Um, the brachot and the klalot, the blessings and the curses. As I mentioned, um, the so the the Mishnah says that when the Jewish people crossed the Jordan River and they came um, to these mountains, Grizim and Eval, uh, they were in Samaria by Elon More, which is actually now a city in Samaria, which is near Shechem, which is Nablus, I think it's called in English. Um, the Kohanim stood, the priest stood around the Ark, the Aron, then the Levi'im stood around them, uh, and then they would turn to the, the tribes on Har Grizim, on the mountain of Grizim, and they would, the Kohanim and the Levim would say the blessings, and everybody would say Amen. Then they would turn to Har Eval, to the mountain of Eval, and they would say the curses, um, and then everyone says Amen. Right, so it's one, 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 they go back and forth on these stones and they would sleep uh, in Gilgal, uh, which was a uh, city further down. Okay, that's so now the Gemara goes back. Sota can be said in any language.
I mentioned she needs to understand what a low voice. Okay, wait, can you hear me now? Yes? Okay, great. Okay, sorry, I guess my internet went out a little bit. Um, okay, um, um, when we say the Amida, right, the silent Amida, Shmonastre, um, so the, the Gemara says, right, you're, you're confessing sins, so you should do it quietly, right, so you aren't embarrassed. Um, so the Gemara says, yes, we don't want you to be, you don't have to embarrass yourself in public, um, therefore we do say it quietly. Um, Shema, remember we said Shema Yisrael can be said in any language. Again, Shema, we actually did this in Masechet Brachot, uh, almost three and a half years ago. Um, we talked about sh the word Shema means to hear. Um, so one interpretation is you have to you have to say it out loud so you can hear the words. Um, right? You can't say right. Yourself, you have to interpretation. Um, you have to hear, meaning it has to be in Hebrew. Uh, again, our Mishnah disagrees with that and says Shema means you can you have to hear it, but it does not have to be in Hebrew. Um, again, Shmona uh, Sre, the silent uh, Amida on the top of Daf 33. Um, the silent Amida can be said in any language because we're asking for mercy, and when we ask for mercy, that could be done. Uh, that should be done in any language, right? So you understand what you're saying. Um, another statement, however, this actually we learned in Masechet Brachot um, and I think Shabbat, um, says that you should ask for things in Hebrew so that angels will send it and that they can bring your prayers up to God. Uh, the Gemara says, wait a minute, um, Angels only understand Hebrew, um, and why do we need that? So the Gemara says, you're right. Um, if an individual is praying, so you need the power of the angels to take up your prayer, therefore you should do it in Hebrew. But as a community, if you're, if you're praying in a community, you don't need the angels to take it up. The, the communal prayer, excuse me, the communal prayer is strong enough to get it almost directly to God, and therefore it could be in any language. Um, the Gemara says, wait a minute, um, Yohanan, the high priest, heard a bat call, a divine voice, and it was speaking in Aramaic. So it must be that angels do understand other languages. So the Gemara says, well, a bat call is different. That's not an angel. That's just a divine voice. Or... Actually, who was that angel? That's a special angel. It was Gabriel, right? Gabriel, we know, uh, knows 70 languages. Uh, there's a Midrash that says that Yosef understood 70 languages. He was taught from Gabriel. Gabriel, Gabriel, the angel taught him. All 70 languages. Um, as we mentioned, uh, Birkat Amazon, the grace after the meals, can be said in any language based on a verse. Um, Bikurim, 
uh, the bringing of the first fruit learned from the Levi'im also has to be in Hebrew. Um, Chalitza, as I mentioned, also has to be Hebrew. Uh, and from here, the Gemara talks about these two mountains, uh, the mountain of Grizim and Eval. Um, where are they, right? So they're beyond the Jordan River, um, not right next to the Jordan River, um, and it's near Shechem. Um, and the Gemara says it's where um, the Kutim live. Uh, this is, again, that uh, nation that uh, converted under duress. There's always a discussion uh, whether or not they're really Jewish or not. Um, and um, again, uh, maybe, uh, again, the maybe the mountains are here to the west. Maybe they're a little bit more east. Um, and um, there's a discussion where this is. It, it, it is interesting to, under, to know um, that uh, you can actually go see uh, the mountain of Grizim and Eval. Uh, they, it is near Shechem, near Nablus. And uh, what's fascinating is uh, there is a, a group of people in Israel called the Sumerians, um, the, the Shomronim, um, and they... Um, they say that they're, right, originally they connected to Judaism, even though nowadays not so much, um, and they believe that um, Har Grizim is the holy place because that's where the blessings were said, uh, and they have their temple on Har Grizim, uh, which is fascinating. I think I mentioned them when we were learning Masechet Psachim uh, because they actually do the Korban Pesach, the sacrifice of uh, Passover, they do it uh, on this mountain and they have a high priest and it's just, it's fascinating. Um, so they actually uh, feel that that is um, the, right, well, our, our Ke'ilu, Jerusalem, is for them Har Grizim. So that's just, you should just know. Um, okay, uh, now um, the, we're, we're going to talk about the crossing of the Jordan. Um, so the, the crossing of the Jordan was done with the Aron, the Ark went in front. It was carried by the priests uh, and not the Levi'im, as, which is the way they usually did it. Um, the Gemara tells us that the Kohanim carried the Aron three times um, crossing the Jordan when they circled Jericho, Yericho, um, and when they returned the uh, Ark, the Aron, to the temple in the time of Shlomo. All other times, the Aaron was carried by the Levi'im, by the Levites. Um, Daf 34, uh, we're continuing to discuss the crossing of the Jordan. So when the priests went into the water, um, so again, it's a river. So the river uh, basically stopped flowing. So everything downstream dried up. And then upstream, it became a wall of water. Um, and this wall of water got bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, so much so that all the nations of, of the area saw this pillar of water. Uh, and that's how Rahab says, right, we were very scared of you in Jericho because we saw, even though she says we heard, but we heard about what happened uh, at the Jordan. Uh, here they seem to imply that it's not only heard, but actually saw. Um, while the Jews were crossing the Jordan, Yehoshua, Joshua, tells the nation 
um, right, like one minute or I don't know if they stopped or while they were walking, he was saying that they should realize that the reason we're crossing this river is to inherit the land. Uh, and I think it's just fascinating um, that we're talking about, you know, kind of mindfulness, right? Yosha say, everyone just stop for one minute and recognize what you're about to do, right? This is what we've been waiting for for 40 years or maybe, you know, 400 years. We've been waiting to enter the land. Everyone just take a moment and recognize what we're doing. And I think it's just a very powerful image. Um, from there, um, Yoshua told them to take 12 stones out of the riverbed. And these were going to be a sign for future generations that they crossed the Jordan River. Uh, then they were told to take 12 other stones and put them in their resting place where they were going to be resting, and that is Gilgal. Uh, from here, the Gemara says that each one of these stones, it's not a little pebble like I picked up on the beach today, right? It's a big rock. It weighs um, 400 se'a, which is very heavy. Um, and um, since we're talking about the amount that a person can carry, uh, as the Gemara generally does, where is another time in the Torah that we have people carrying uh, something heavy or, uh, yeah, heavy that we want to know how much it weighs? Uh, so we go to um, the spies. If you remember the 12 spies, the Miraglim, they come back from Israel carrying grapes, right? So, you know, like the logo of, I think it's Carmel Winery. Uh, there's a logo of like two people, right? I think it's even also like the tourist ministry in Israel. I have to go look that up. But right, two people with a stick and grapes in the middle, right? So here the Gemara says, oh, it must be, right, if one person can carry 40 se'ah. And you can carry um, three times as much if you're carrying it with another person. So then the grapes must have weighed, you know, a lot. Uh, and the Gemara does this calculation. Uh, and then the Gemara says, no, no, no. It wasn't carried like that symbol, like two people, one pole. Rather, it was two poles, which means four people. And then the Gemara says, no, no, no. It was four poles which means eight people, right? So the grapes are getting bigger and bigger, if you're noticing. Um, so the Gemara says, uh, you know, it was actually eight people carrying these grapes. And then um, two other, right, w uh, one other spy carried a big pomegranate and another spy carried a fig. Uh, and th that leaves, that's 10, leaves two spies. We have Yoshua and Kalev. Uh, who um, were either, um, it wasn't uh, like honor for them to carry fruit, or they were like, you guys are bad news, we're staying away from you, you know, figuratively and literally, right? So we're not, we're not involved in your bad testimony, and we're not carrying any fruit. Um, so, uh, so here, again, as we mentioned, um, Ah, then there's a, a discussion in the Gemara how they actually crossed the desert, the Jordan River. Did they cross one tribe after another in a long line? Or did they cross the way they camped in the desert, right? Like that square, right? Uh, three tribes, you know, in the beginning, then two, then um, two groups of three on the side and then one in the back. 
uh, one group of three in the back. So did they go that like wide or did they go like narrow? Um, from here, since we were talking about the spies, the, the Gemara now talks about um, the spies. So uh, it says that uh, God tells Moshe, Shlach lecha, right? Send for, right? You should send them, right? Or you send them for yourself. What does this mean? God is saying, you need to make your own decision if you want to send them because God knows it's not going to end well. So God is not going to send them because he knows it's not going to end well. If you want to send them, Moshe, okay, but, you know, it's on you. Um, right? It says that they actually had bad intentions from the beginning. Um, and then it talks about uh, Kalev, right? Caleb, Kalev, who goes to Hebron. He separates from the group. He goes to pray by his ancestor's grave, by Maharata Machpelah, um, the, what's it called? The cave of the uh, patriarchs, the grave of the patriarchs, Maharata Machpelah, whatever it's called. Um, yeah? Okay. Um, not That's not what it's called? Okay, someone write it. Ma'arat ha'machpelah. In Hebron, in Hebron, mm -hmm. the, 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 where the, where the forefathers are buried. Um, so he goes to pray over there. Um, and um, from there, it talks about how fertile, uh, how beautiful the land is in Hebron. It's even better than the land of Egypt. Um, so uh, we're going to end here, but uh, the Gemara continues talking about the spies, um, so we will talk more about that next week. Uh, so wishing everyone a uh, wonderful, a wonderful week. That was good. We got some impurity, purity. We got some Sota. Oh, cave of the patriarchs. Thank you. Um, we got some, uh, we got some stories, some biblical stories. So uh, I think it was a well-rounded cheer for today. So <laughs> wishing everyone a wonderful week uh, and see you next week. Be'ezrat Hashem. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Bye-bye. Um...